that's why I talk with experts on how we create intimacy with, with and through different media and technologies. Uh, my name is Jolene Blom and I'm your host today. Um, I'm finally back after some delay with a new episode. And today's guest is Nicole Lamarix, a senior lecturer in creative business at the HU University of Applied Sciences in the Netherlands. Uh, she researches uh, audiences and fans in the current creative business and popular culture. She also wrote the book Productive Fandom, Intermediality uh, and Effective Reception in Fan Cultures, which I will uh, put down the link uh, in, this, uh, in the episode description. And she can be hired as a consultant on fans and audiences. Uh, I think at this moment you're hired by the Lego group for this. Uh, so welcome, Nicole. Hi, welcome. So so nice to see you again, Jolene, and to talk about uh, intimacy with you in different media contexts. That's really exciting. So I'm looking forward. Thanks. Yeah, me too. Me too. I've been very excited for this uh, for this episode. Um, so today we will discuss the role of characters in these uh, in these businesses in the creative business, uh, which is a topic that I think is well, it's close to my heart, but I think also to yours, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think characters need much more attention in media studies, game studies. So I'm really happy that we're going to be talking about them because when we talk about intimacy uh, towards stories and entertainment, characters are often at the heart of that. And the relationship that we have towards characters is uh, yeah, just fascinating to study and something we need to do more of. So glad that we talk about that today. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. Before we start, um, could you introduce yourself a little bit further? I think you nailed it. <laughs> there isn't much, <laughs> no, there isn't much, much else uh, I can I can say. Um, yeah, the consultancy gig for Lego um, is just done. So, but it was a great one because it shows companies are also interested in strategies around fans. Um, I'm currently consulting for the Efteling, which is a Dutch fairy tale theme park. So yeah, people are interested in fan culture. They're interested in deepening the experiences of their brands and how consumers interact with those uh, brands and attractions and rides or toys. So from different angles across the world, we're hearing more and more about fan culture and invested consumers and people are excited, corporations as well. Um, yeah, other than that, uh, like you, I'm, I'm passionate about character studies as well. I think we're onto something here that is deeply effective and that perhaps is worth studying more. So that's me. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that uh, a little bit today. Uh, why do you think that audiences are so interested in characters? Why specifically characters, right? Mm -hmm. Um. Well, first of all, we're in a very character-saturated culture globally. So characters are all around us. We identify with them. We relate to them, um, whether it's the characters from the MCU or Star Wars or think about Harry Potter. These are really phenomena. We care about the fate of these characters, right? When Game of Thrones was ending, that was all we could talk about. And we wondered, you know, what will happen to Daenerys? What will happen to Jon Snow and all these other characters that we love? so deeply and so much so we're in a kind of collective character culture so characters i think are very visible in the entertainment landscape and in the creative industries the other thing is they're often used um, to promote particular brands 
Um, let's say, you know, Mickey Mouse is one of the earlier ones, but um, at the moment we have tons of, of brands that represent themselves through characters, sometimes even with interactive chatbots um, and kind of virtual representations of those characters. So that's uh, another huge, huge trend. We love interacting with characters and um, they're fundamental to interfaces today, I would say. And that brings me to another point um, that increasingly we see data-driven characters emerge, voice assistants like Siri or Alexa, um, characters that are more than a character like Hatsune Miku, who is almost like a virtual idol that we can connect with. Think also of the trends like um, virtual influencers, which are all around us today. They don't really exist. They heavily connect to brands. They heavily connect to internet platforms, but they're fictional. Like little Michaela is presented like a real human on Instagram, but she's a virtual character that we're supposed to engage with, interact with and feel something for. And also this trend is growing heavily, heavily, heavily. So we're seeing a wide range of characters and they're all spilling beyond, I would say, traditional stories. Then perhaps kind of a related trend is that um, we're acting more and more also with different robotic devices. We just saw an AI artist, Ida, which caused some commotion. We have robots like Sophia that have literally been presented as citizens in this world. So there's a lot going on, I think, around character. And it doesn't end with stories, but it also has something to do with brands, technology, business models. Um, so they're palpitating different aspects of our lives. And I'm not sure if you saw if you saw the Facebook um, presentation yesterday, the big stream, but if it's up to Zuckerberg, we all become characters in his big epic metaverse. So the next step perhaps is that we're going into something that goes beyond gaming uh, into a kind of social media sphere that connects virtual reality, games, social media as we know them, <laughs> into this big universe um, where we ourselves become heavily uh, characterized. So I'm really curious where these trends are going. Um, perhaps you also have some thoughts on it, Yulaine. Yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking about, right? Like I'm also looking at um, uh, the outline that I wrote down here and you also mentioned it, like Mickey Mouse is a very old example. So this character culture is definitely not new. Uh, we can easily, like if I were to put down a date to it, I would say 1920s is definitely where we can see this trend starting. Maybe even the 80, 80s, 1890s, if we really want to bring it uh, back a hundred years. Uh, 1920s already hundred years ago, <laughs> but um, like you said, there are currently there are so many examples. Um, I think characters uh, from the 1920s on have been uh, a business, but the business has been growing, and now it it easily uh, goes together with new technology. Um, you wrote a, an an article about that like a couple of years ago, uh, 2018, 2019. And I don't think indeed that we can really see characters as something that is purely fictional. I'm also not quite sure if they are real, real in the sense that we are real, but it's definitely intertwined. Like the way that we uh, currently uh, mediate ourselves is also the way that we mediate characters. 
And the one thing that I do think that has changed a lot is how we have been looking at characters um, since 100 or 200 years ago, where it was more of an, okay, characters are part of a structure, they are a textual pattern, and that's it. And nowadays, we conflate them often with uh, persons or uh, being person-like, um, and, and, and a real person can become a character as well. Uh, and now we have this metaverse uh, going on. I mean, we're not even sure if it's going to take off at all. Uh, and that seems to have uh, to be going to be going in some parallels with um, the idea of the avatar, which sometimes is a character, sometimes it isn't. Can we even talk of fictional, real, and virtual anymore? Or should we like invest in a different word or type of character? I think so. I think um, we need a kind of networked or systematic approach where we have different actors. Yeah, again, I don't want to hit hit everyone in the podcast with Bruno Latour, but this kind of thinking where um, we're perhaps in a reality um, that consists of different elements and different types of, of, of beings. I think that's sort of what we need to move towards. And no, I don't think creating a big dichotomy still between real and virtual. And I was, you know, already against that 10 years ago because it influences each other so much already um, back then. Um, I don't think that's the way at all. I think there are different things that exist in this reality and that influence each other uh, and that our reality at some point will be just as shaped by something like the metaverse. Again, doesn't matter if it takes off or not, but it's a kind of thing companies are not aspiring to and want to make a business model. So that's fascinating. So how that will go, I find I find fascinating. And then the flip side as well of us becoming characters and um, perhaps also data-driven beings, huh? because Elon Musk also has a big startup, Neuralink, where uh, literally we get yeah, augmented as humans because particular data will be uploaded to us, perhaps to correct our behavior or a paralysis of our hands, so to fix certain disabilities, so to say, or illnesses. But when you take that device a bit further, um, yeah, it, it goes also deeply into the Android cyborg territory. So we see indeed these science fiction ambitions back now in companies and it's um, a weird momentum to be in, but I do think we need to be on our toes. Um, and that line, is, that line is already there, huh? Um, let's say a gaming example, Epic, um, the company behind Fortnite is also heavily investing in the metaverse. And what I thought was amazingly interesting was when, and they're doing this a lot, they're doing a lot of concerts by um, idols um, like Ariana Grande or different rappers in Fortnite itself. So they're continuously blurring this line and playing with it. And this trend, like this is just the start of what they're aiming for. And it's fascinating because it also means um, we're already in a character-saturated culture, but it will become more and more normalized also for people who maybe are not that into gaming right now um, or who who um, don't care about it that much. I do think that at some point this will become a more normalized um, attitude in our world. So I'm very curious where all of this is going. Of course, I'm very skeptical. What does it mean when Facebook and or Epic are in charge of literally a big stake of these virtual realities. It's really problematic. So we see a new type of platform economy 
being shaped here, which will have tremendous impact on our lives. Um, and these companies, especially Facebook, don't have the best track record. Um, so I'm also really worried. But at the same time, it's a fascinating trend to keep an eye out when you're uh, a game scholar. And again, this is a podcast also catering heavily to media and game scholars. So let's keep an eye out because yeah. we're, we're going to be needed. It doesn't necessarily seem to be more of an ontological uh, question, like the, the ways of being in this case uh, of, of different types of characters, but rather like where is the business going? It's a question of, 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 of business. But that business is not neutral either, right? Um, as we know from how Facebook filters its content, how it moderates, how it has allowed for hate speech for all of these years and structural yeah. um, algorithms of oppression, let's say, um, it's it's going to go into an, an, yeah potentially problematic uh, zone. And again, it's also Facebook, right, who, who are selling our data left and right um, and automating it left and right and sometimes not for the best. Um, so an algorithmic self might be creating an algorithmic identity that's um, pretty far yeah. from who we are, right? That's already happening now when you look at those personalized ads and you sometimes feel like, well, this is really not me or why do they keep hitting me with that? Think of those type of things being worsened in a virtual reality, right? Where um, perhaps we're also confronted with things and people and content we don't like, but Facebook assumes it's what we want. But then uh, let's let's connect audiences to it because it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to connect uh, uh, characters to uh, to business, um, but then why are audiences so interested? And so. I'm what is um, the role of, of their interest? What is the role of affect uh, in this? Uh, and I'm not sure if everyone uh, of, the, of, of the audience of this podcast uh, uh, knows what affect is or what we mean with it, um, or affective perception, what, what you wrote about. So let's start with like what is affect and affective perception and then connect it to character culture and this, this, this business that they're in. Well, in academia, there are <clears throat> different understandings of affect. Um... Putting it very plainly, it's about being moved, and it will often precede an emotion. So affect is um, the intensity with which we feel. It's uh, perhaps goosebumps, tingles, but we don't, we haven't really qualified yet. Okay, what am I now? Am I passionate about something? Am I am I jealous? And am, am I angry? So that's all emotional. But affect often comes before it. It's that feeling of being moved, overwhelmed invested in something um, in a broad sense. Um, so that's the, the, the category as we use it often in philosophy, right? In Spinoza or Deleuze's work or many others. Effective reception, um, which indeed is a term uh, by me um, that I love to point to, um, is something as, yeah, related. It's about how audiences uh, invest in characters, how they invest in stories or celebrities. Um, both the good and bad feelings. So we can have effective reception that's completely enthusiastic about something like Sherlock Holmes or, um, yeah, you name it, uh, Mickey Mouse, the things we just discussed, um, could also turn quite negative. And that's something we've seen growing as well in fan culture, partly due to the fact that we're dealing more and more with um, remixes of media content, adaptations, appropriations, this can be confronting for audiences. And they might feel 
okay, I just went to Ghostbusters, but this really isn't my Ghostbusters. I, I don't care about this gender bent version of it or this Star Wars. That's not my Luke Skywalker. So these feelings are really dynamic and audiences are increasingly also vocal about them. Um, so it's not a stable process. That's one of the things I, I always emphasize. This is dynamic uh, effect growth. Your appreciation of a character can grow throughout the years. It can also be something you care about less. Um, I used to care a lot about something like Harry Potter, but let's say because of how G.K. Rowling has acted, I am much less invested in the franchise now, even though I can still appreciate the characters, right? They meant a lot to me and um, the fan community as well. But um, this is not a cookie cut story where it's like, I love this character and end of story. No, being a fan and being invested in a character always grows. And at some point, maybe you're also estranged from those uh, entities, from those characters. So um, yeah, that's what I mean with effective reception in a nutshell. And um, maybe it's something we can, we can uh, discuss uh, more today. I've I've seen uh, a few few in a few uh, of your article or a few a couple of your articles I've seen uh, these examples. So we have Cassandra in Assassin's Creed. There was a, a feud over that, uh, and also Sonic the Hedgehog uh, movie. There was a, a fans had some problems uh, with the characters, or well, with Sonic specifically, not with the rest of the characters, right? Uh, <laughs> I haven't played or watched. Both of them, I have to admit. I mean, I, I know what it's about. Uh, but let's let's start with the one in uh, of Cassandra. That, that is one that I particularly like. Because here the developer, like, in a sense, promised one thing. You play through the game, and then they added down, uh, downloadable content and changed it, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, it's a, a, a very interesting case. So this is uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. We're talking about a recent uh, installment, pre uh, the latest one, Valhalla. Um, Odyssey is an interesting game because throughout the game, you can play um, as a female or male assassin. Um, it's a very unique game. Um, gives you lots of options also to play uh, uh, the character in a queer way, so bisexual or lesbian or any way you please. Um, so that's really beautiful. And it's a big open world, lots of choice. You have some stake in the character and developing her, it feels. And that's really good. Um, I think fans were particularly upset about was the DLC, where you have to um, engage in a straight relationship and even... Um, so if you were female, even bear the child, right? So you even have to have a kid. Um, this was really problematic to many people. Um, a, because many hadn't played Cassandra this way, so it felt really like queer erasure, like, oh, there goes the character we invested in, you promised us all of these things, and now we get a DLC that concludes the story, <laughs> and it goes into a totally different direction. So it felt very homophobic. Um, the other thing many people felt was that it wasn't thought true. Like, of course, this is a predecessor for the later Assassin's Creed games. So idea was that she, uh, you know, that this, this case, son or kid of hers ties in with the rest of the franchise, right? But then, even then, <laughs> it could have been an adopted child, right? So they could have easily, with just a few tweaks, created some options that would have made it, um, yeah, uh, more friendly 
Um, so it really stood out how in the main game you get this buffet of options and how in the, uh, the, the later game that that just wasn't the case um, and it wasn't thought through at all. And uh, yeah, then it also shows uh, likely that there was a different team behind this developing this probably in parallel to the main game, which is what often happens with these DLCs. Um, but yeah, it caused a lot of tension. And I think a lot of tension in today's media landscape comes from that. It comes from uh, us continuously wanting to expand upon stories. So do engaging in yeah, what we in academia often call transmedia storytelling or transmedia world building. But then the caveat of that is because often these, these productions are by big teams with different subwriters and sub teams, uh, consistency might get lost. Things might be promised, but then if you look at the franchise as a whole, it just doesn't make sense. So it's very rare for this to be done absolutely well. And we already see it now also a little bit with the MCU. The first cracks are just showing why, because they have these beautiful products, but unlike the more traditional transmedia stories like The Matrix, these products don't stand on their own that well. They always end in the MCU lately with a cliffhanger. So it always feels like a cop-out because something like WandaVision, which stood perfectly well on its own uh, for many episodes, was really engaging, had some subtle references, but in the end, it's, it's really just a Doctor Strange prequel. Um, in which Wanda isn't even called out for her actions, which also upset a lot of people. So there was a lot of tension in that show, for instance, where people were really excited in the beginning, and then the end is just a cop out. We hear the same about Loki and so many of these shows, where in the end, it just always feels like it doesn't end with a bang, because it ends with, and here's the next Marvel installment. Keep investing, but by now that feels like a gimmick and people have really had it. Um, and it doesn't feel because of that, that the characters are moving where they should move and that they're developed the way they should be developed. Because in the end, Wanda's just, you know, <laughs> foreshadowing Doctor Strange and not a character on her own anymore. And that that can be really where some of these tensions occur. You mentioned Sonic, perfect example. Um, because there, um, Sonic is a character we've known for many years, super nostalgic, super kawaii, super cute hedgehog. And then we get an American film, which makes this character look awfully human, with human teeth, uh, fur, so not even spikes. It didn't even look like Sonic. So people were really upset. What is this abomination? And they were so upset that the director indeed invested a lot of time and resources and pulling back the film and redesigning Sonic altogether. Definitely most fascinating for us is how, how vividly and how visceral fans responded to hating that design of Sonic. And really the, the things you, you could see on Twitter back then, yeah, super fascinating discourse. And you really see the negative effect there, yeah. What I usually say, is it's a question of authorship as well. Um, like who is actually creating these uh, these characters or these stories or these worlds? Uh, and I don't think we can completely say, okay, it is um, solely the creator creator as a god anymore. And I mean, this is already... Uh, been dumped, debunked uh, since the 1970s with uh, Roland Barthes and uh, Michel Foucault, uh, that the author is dead. Uh, on the other hand, I would also say, yeah, but right now there seems to be 
uh, rather saying that the author is dead. So we are like, uh, not only are we the, the, the consumers, producers, um, the author is still very much present in the sense that they can change uh, things. So the example of Cassandra, right? You have a product, you buy Assassin's Creed Odyssey and players uh, loved it because they finally got like many options uh, or ways to play Cassandra and it can be very uh, straight, very queer, very nothing like that at all. Uh, and then the DLC comes and the big, the big author developer, and we don't even know who that is. Like you said, is this a development team behind it? And we don't know, even know if it's the same one. Suddenly comes in with this, this very yeah, heteronormative marriage, basically. And players didn't like it because they've been promised a lot of agency in there, right? So then, you know, that's that, that, that idea of authorship. That I, I also think that there's a tension over there. Who is creating this? Like, so not, not only do we need to constantly, like in, in a transmedia uh, ecology or transmedia storytelling, continue to develop these uh, uh, these new installments, right? Yeah, I think you're onto something by seeing it is about authorship. And, and it really, really, really is. Um, and I think some of the more interesting cases that work have tight authorship but even there it can be just it can feel wrong it can feel like someone's just signing off but not that involved um the george lucas's of this world let's say or gk rowling for that matter um and yeah uh, indeed then it's shifting to fans seemingly the authorship but not really um, fans feel entitled to a product or to a certain something. That's kind of what happened with Sonic. It's what happened with Game of Thrones. So we see a whole petition culture when fans don't agree uh, of millions of people signing something and hoping a product will change. Yeah, and is that then connected to the effect that, that, we, uh, that you spoke about? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it really is. Um, the effect now is, is mobilized in different ways. And a petition culture is one of them where we are continuously, um, you know, if we don't agree with something, we expect companies to fix it, which really isn't realistic. So we're in a, a kind of momentum where companies have catered to fans a lot. Something like the MCU is mostly in a way fan service and it's catering to knowledgeable people uh, and it's pushing you to rewatch the film so that you know every rabbit hole and every reference. Then, you know, uh, extrapolate that feeling of having been catered to for the past 10, 20 years post-Matrix. What it's leading to is two things. One is a severe entitlement of certain audience. Not all. Not all. I think some, some are still behaving very uh, good and are just critical. But there is a wave of critical fans that then take that quite far. Um, Riga Morty style. They just go into the McDonald's and cause a raid. They wanted that that sauce back from the Rick and Morty um, show. And I think had, in, some, in some cases, McDonald's was raided when they reintroduced that sauce, something like that. This was two years ago. But they, they, their friends is a fandom known for being quite uh, pushy. So I think it's, it's definitely not all fans. There's different ways of being a fan. But what we see now is a... Yeah, an interesting uh, vocal uh, type of fan, e emer well, emerging. They've been there all along, but they get more of a podium today, perhaps, because 
um, media seem to listen to them, or at least they think so because of yeah. social media. It's a very interesting uh, momentum. So things have changed from, uh, um, I would say, 30, 40 years ago. So can, so can we actually say that the audience can influence a franchise? Oops, sorry, I'm going to say this again. <laughs> um, can we say that an audience can influence an, a franchise very easily? Or is it, uh, it's, it sounds as if you're saying, okay, it seems that this, there is some voice or uh, vocalization that an audience can do, but it's limited quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really the case because we're dealing here with huge franchises. Um, and it's also hard to track. Huh? What, what, is, what is it that's being adopted from an audience? Um, like, unless they very explicitly rewrite a character like Sonic, it's very hard to say what are people picking up from fan culture. Um, and then it really is just... Um, basic theories we can have about, but we don't know for sure. I remember back in the day, there was a contest for the second season of, of Heroes, and they did a lot of crowdsourcing with the fans on what they hoped to see. Uh, it seemed like they took those ideas, but they never really credited the fans. So it's really hard to say, okay, but these ideas come from fan community. Some of these ideas are also quite cliche, huh? Yeah. And what I feel with these shows like, and this already started 10 15 years ago with Lost or Battlestar Galactica and lately Game of Thrones, you feel a little bit that these creators are kind of diving into the fan theories here and there. Um, but actually, because those are so specific and often predictable, they try to do something else. And that is why some of these shows end pretty weirdly because you feel like they want to surprise us. <laughs> but because we already thought of everything, and the whole thing is to speculate about these shows, what, what the ending will be like. They really pull out some really unexpected twists. <laughs> uh, and that's why, you know, an ending like Lost, it's iconic, uh, but also, yeah, complained about a lot. But I think a lot of that had to do with, okay, we are, we're a show that aims to surprise. We have a very invested fan community. They figured it all out. And what else can we do to... <laughs> put a final twist to this that's how it feels but again these are things we can't really prove or trace um yes we can have a look at how creators discuss these things at comic cons or how they engage with the fans overall on twitter or elsewhere but it will still remain really a theory so i always think this is this is very hard to study personally yeah um and the best we can say about it indeed is there are explicit moments where fan ideas are incorporated and credit it, or when people listen to fans and actually make a statement about it, okay, we've added to this, because we do feel like you do, that this represents the film better, but there are many other moments where it just can't, it can't be done, and this is also a big struggle for brands, by the way, like, think about Lego, what we do is we have these idea sets, but some of these can't be done, right, so you've raised, uh, these are fan-created sets, by the way, and if you're a fan, um, you can ask for the idea to become real. So uh, if enough fans vote for it, Lego will look into developing the sets. What many fans will then say is, well, many of these sets don't become a reality, so they feel cheated, right? Oh, this RuPaul Drag Race set, it didn't happen. So why am I even voting? Or this Zelda castle, which was uh, this year's set from this month, a Hyrule Castle set, um, Lego declined it. 
But often while I go to clients, it's, it's really because of IP. They, they don't have the trademark to Zaula and it will take years to develop that. And if they have it, they might want to do something else. So they might even be cooking up something because with Nintendo, we have partnerships. And then what, what will happen is fans will get really upset because they feel, well, I gave you an idea. Other fans like the idea. Why is this not a set? Um, and some things also have to do with safety or that the set um, can be built in the way that fans build it because fans use certain materials that maybe are not the official Lego vision. Um, so there's a lot of discussion around this. This is product development and it's not like, okay, there's the set and we immediately make it exactly like this in exactly this way. Yeah. And with, yeah, with this exact trademark. So they're doing their best very much, but there are limits. And that is something that does stand out to me is, um, Fans sometimes are not that literate in what those limits are and those business models. And I kind of get that. Like, I don't maybe even expect it, but then to be very vocal about it um, and also mean to employees of these companies, like literally harass them, I think goes extremely uh, far. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting that you're the, how you're like the examples that you're pulling, pulling up, right? Like, uh, when you just said, okay, and, and uh, Legends of Zelda Castle, my immediate thought was, oh, Nintendo's not going to like that. <laughs> I'm already going to pull that off. Because it's, as you said, it's it's IP. And, and so when fans do not know the um, inner workings of the business or the product development behind it, and it's it, even 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 theoretically or, or just in a general sense, it is hard to explain to them, like, look, this is going to take years. So you might see this in five years if we do the right things and Nintendo has a good day today. Right, and not even a good day. There are just so many reasons why they might not do it. And they have their own ideas about, uh, like, that's the other thing, right? Uh, Lego now has a Mario uh, um, line and that has a certain image. And that Zelda castle is a nice idea. But it, for instance, wouldn't, yeah. Again, now I'm speculating, but it doesn't really fall under that that line of we want something between Duplo and Lego that young people can play with. We use Mario as a jumping board. It's a very playful franchise, very interactive type of Lego. So if you're going to be continuing your Nintendo sets, it's probably going to be in that zone, at least the Mario ones, because they also proposed a, a Mario uh, castle I believe this this round or previous one, but that of course would clash with how they're using Mario now. So this is a bigger um, yeah. corporate thing, and um, yeah, then you read the comments and it's like, oh, but they already have a relationship with Nintendo, so this must why can't this be done? Well, because they probably have a different vision for it. And again, um, some fans will say that, but many others will be, oh, I'm so disappointed. I'm feeling so much pain and sadness. And why was this sad? Not so again, the negative affective reception starts happening. Yeah. Um, but perhaps not even needed. So fans, yeah, uh, again, love studying them, but you see we're in an emotional momentum in fan culture as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just so many strands and so many reasons behind it. I, I, as you said, like it's very hard to keep track of the of what is actually going on. And usually, what is actually going on is well, and this there's NIP and there's defense and time optimums and there's uh, the idea of authorship and just what is the fiction of all these uh, businesses and then the affects to those characters. Yeah. Yeah. The relationship. Yeah. Really? Yes. Uh, since we're talking about relationships, I'm going to use this as a little bridge to the next um, to the next topic. 
um, dating simulators. You actually had a uh, presentation about it. Yes, yesterday. Yes, yes, it was yesterday. Um, on uh, Atomic Games uh, with Patrick uh, Galbraith. Um, just, uh, just for the audience, I speak about Atomic Games in episode one, but basically we can call them dating simulators from Japan aimed at um, straight women. Uh, I say aimed at, I'm not saying played by, but uh, they are obviously very much uh, uh, played by others. Uh, but then there are also Bishoujo games uh, that are more aimed towards uh, uh, straight men. Uh, which uh, have cute girl characters. And you see these cute girl characters a lot around uh, current popular culture as well. So here the, um, the affection or affect uh, with characters play uh, a main role. And I think they are, uh, it's becoming more popular. So a very recent game is Boyfriend Dungeon, uh, which I have opinions about. Uh, there seems to be, uh, um, nowadays, if we just, if you look at like Atomic Games and Bishoujo Games or dating simulators from maybe 10, 15 years ago, it started around the 90, uh, 90s, at least for Atomic Games. Um, they have perpetuated or pervaded Western-centric uh, game culture. So there are more dating simulators uh, currently available, which is great. It gives a new idea to what gaming actually means. Um, and at the same time, there is uh, more diversity in which kind of characters players can actually date. Because Otome and Bishoujo is very much geared towards a certain type of player, a straight player, basically. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about this trend and where do you see this going? Um, yeah, there's a big trend indeed to adopt these mechanics in Western uh, yeah, games or Western-centric. So um, I agree with you. We see that a lot. What we also see is that these have a um, slightly less heteronormative approach. So especially visual novels and dating sims are adopted a lot by the queer community and queer uh, indie designers. Boyfriend Dungeon is a great example, um, even though you can also play as a woman, so it's uh, you can also play it very straight. Um, you can also play it as, as a man or as a trans character. So it's um, yeah, a really exciting game uh, from that perspective. Um, and yeah, we can we can talk later maybe about the issues you had with it that I had with it. Um, I think it's an interesting case. Again, also coming back to effect, but um, yeah, I think we're seeing a new wave of um, dating sims, which are a bit more queer in terms of representation, but also in terms of gameplay, because they often subvert uh, the idea that dating sims have, which is that you can just win a relationship, right? And that... Um, yeah, if you just give the right answer. answer. Yeah, if you give the right answer, and if you go through all of them, you're just going to get the best, best ending ever, which is, of course, not in that sense, the best simulator of relationships. So uh, lately we also see some unease being simulated in these games or some um, abusive uh, relationships or relationships that fail or that don't come to a closure, which I, I think is really interesting. Um, uh, let's, 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 as an example, use an uh, uh, boyfriend dungeon. I'm constantly thinking not a full boyfriend, but it's a different, a different game. Um, we can also, we can discuss both. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's start with boyfriend dungeon then, because, simply for the fact that I played that one and not the other one. Good. Um, 
so with Python Dungeon, what I uh, heard, or not heard, before I played it, I, I heard a, a fans, again, fans uh, uh, shouting their opinions about uh, the game. Uh, and obviously, I have my own as well. Um, that there was an abusive relationship in there that they wish they could have opted out from. Yes. Um, I played it, and you, it takes a little bit of time before you understand which relationship is abusive. Uh, I think they actually did it quite well. Um, uh, I will spoil, spoil it here a little bit. Um, there is a stalker, uh, and, and the stalking is not so, so obvious in my, uh, in my opinion. It, it gradually becomes more and more obvious, and that is where I think they did actually very well to, to show it, that it's like, it gives you this eerie feeling uh, of like someone constantly watching you and being in a certain, uh, wanting you to be a certain way, and you're not like that. Um, I didn't think it was necessary to opt it out of the game or to have it an, as an option in the game because I think what it does, and that is uh, this is my general complaint about data simulators that I see uh, from uh, Western uh, cultures, is that it actually provides a background narrative and a pretty decent one at, at that, onto which the other uh, relationships, as a comparison, uh, not necessarily developed. But they show the interaction with the uh, with that abusive relationship shows the abusiveness the abusiveness of that relationship. I think it was done quite well as a background narrative. I quite liked. Uh, well, no, no, no. Let's put it differently. I do think um, there were some issues I had with it, um, especially with how again how it's wrapped up. <laughs> which yeah. is all, all about forgiving your stalker, et cetera. Um, I thought the uneerie feeling that you have throughout the game was really interesting. Um, and again, um, this behavior and this type of harassment is about pushing someone's buttons and going over someone's boundaries, right? So if you say, no, I don't want to talk to you, you'll still get text from this character, right? Or no, I want to do, you know, um, I don't want to see you, don't want to go on a date suddenly he's there um so i thought this was this part was handled uh, well and in a in a way that i also felt unease really with as a player which is also the point of the game so i don't think you should erase this because the game is about this it cuts to the heart of it i think one reason why uh, it came up a lot was that uh, there are some relationships you can opt out of in this game there are some things you can say hey um for instance you have a character called mom and yeah, it's left up to you whether that's your biological mom or not. But mom keeps apping you, keeps apping you. And this is someone you can say, I don't wanna, I don't want this relationship. You can say at the start of the game, if you're comfortable with your mom apping you the whole time, or whether you maybe yeah, you don't see your parents and you you'd like to, you know, this is too too much for you. And I think that's one reason why maybe people bring it up a lot. There were things you could opt out of, and the most triggering thing in the game, you can't opt out of that being said it does include some warnings around this content right so yeah which i thought yeah. was good also because it was uh yeah. confronting maybe if you do have 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 if you have been through that yeah um yeah i'm really thinking about it as a game structure i like that if it, uh, um, in my opinion the best uh dating simulators they do well when they have a strong narrative background uh, onto which then the relationships develop. Because if you take that background away, it's just a relationship. And then why am I going to try and catch them all? Right? Like, why, why would I? Um, 
So the best ones are the ones where you have, where there is something there, a story there, onto which this this relationship that you can opt in and opt out of um, then develops. It makes it stronger. It makes it more engaging, I think, rather than just trying to go to level one of the relationship and level two of the relationship. You know, <laughs> like it, it's that's just that's just boring. I get what you mean. And that's also why I'm happy we have uh, different Western games, but also Japanese games that are subverting this genre and adding a lot of depth. Heartful Boyfriend, I think, is one of them yeah. because it completely subverts the genre near the end. And it also includes uh, spooky, creepy relationships and negative effect quite a lot. Um, this game really isn't what you think. Um, there's many others, Long Live the Queen and things like that. Oh, that's not really a dating sim, but there's um, uh, tons of, of these Doki Doki Literature Club. And um, I think it's a great development because these are games in which relationships are central. Um, the things you study, Yolaine, the parasocial relationships, they're all about this. Um, so the more nuance we get in those parasocial relationships in terms of background, but also in terms of types of relationships, yeah. I find that fascinating and uh, a good thing. Um, yeah, and Boyfriend Dungeon, good example, it got very heated, but also um, I do think many people who were very vocal about it hadn't really played it because overall the critics and the um, the fans that had played it, they were quite okay with it. Um, and they understood why this couldn't be deleted from the game because there wouldn't be a game left, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And as you said, you can still criticize the Boyfriend Dungeon for a couple of things. The ending, yeah, it's again, as you said, very similar like WandaVision, like the, not really reflection, just forgiveness and sure. Uh, we can talk about that yeah, in a in a different uh, discussion or in a different at a different time. But uh, I also thought that well executed, well, Boyfriend Dungeon. Why do the relationships go to level six? No, I got the impression because um, they finalized the game early, right? There's still going to be a DLC, so if you bought it now, you're going to get some extra content. I don't know if it's paid or not, but who cares? Because some of the characters also are introduced, like uh, I believe a character who is an axe or something like it. This one, uh, and they promised to put him in. You just, uh, he says something like, I'll see you later. <laughs> and he's never seen again. And then later, uh, I thought it's so bizarre that a few are introduced and then we never even, but then I, I, I read that they're saving a few for the DLC. And I think some extra levels as well. So I think you'll be, probably dating a bit more and then probably it reaches level 10 or so is my assumption yeah so i think more more is coming um uh, and i'm quite curious about it <laughs> yeah me too. because now it felt more like oh i just you know gotta catch them all gotta date them all and then uh and, and I'm, I'm and this is a personal preference uh, i prefer to like really dive into one character and be like, you're you're the one for me ever. And I'm not going to play this game after I've dated you because I don't really care about the others. Um, um, that's how I play. It's, it's a yeah, preference. Yeah. Here, I was a little bit more forced into the other characters. It worked well. They were all um, quite interesting, but then it didn't go deep enough for me. Yeah, I get that. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's indeed you're playing... All 
all of them you're maximalizing in one playthrough. That also surprised me. I I, uh, I think it has something to do with the game already being quite repetitive as a dungeon crawler, because how it works in most visual uh, novels, so this is more of a dungeon crawler, but in a visual novel, you um, if you finish the game once, you can often fast forward things you already played through. So you can quite quickly go to a new character. So I do tend to maximize maximize all of them, <laughs> but in different playthroughs. I did that for Heartful Boyfriend and a few others. And then with Heartful Boyfriend, it's also really rewarding because then the extra content is unlocked. And I think there's more that have this structure. And as long as you can fast forward or skip to something you haven't had yet, I, I personally don't mind. But I think this was much more the setup that Persona or something has. So in that sense, it's not a typical dating sim, but it's more like you have different characters. Um, with all of them, you can have a friendship in one playthrough because it's just an investment, this game. Yeah, and I think that's good because something like Persona, which is hundreds of hours, um, yeah, you know, of course you want to maximize them all and then have one romance or several, also possible in Persona. With Persona, I feel I'm now doing it as, as um, Royale. <sighs> Man, I'm in, at 150 hours just because I want to romance these new characters. But holy moly, it's um, it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. Say. Yeah, I've, I've played it um, as well a couple of years ago. And I, it took me 150 hours to finish the game. And then I saw Royal and I was like, you know, I love this game, but I like my life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not sure why I, I, I did start Royale. I'm at 150, but I'm still no, nowhere near the end. Yeah, I'm at the final dungeon, I think, but that one lasts forever. And yeah. uh, that's easily another game of 40 hours. Yeah, it is. It is. And, that's, and by then you're burned out of the game, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So this podcast um, is usually about, yeah. Uh, not characters, intimacy affects, uh, and, and uh, games play a very important uh, role in that. Uh, so the one thing that I wanted to, to ask is, as, as, as we're talking about uh, dating simulators and about affects, by changing the question a little bit around, or the topic around, what can you, um, what would, could game studies add to our understanding of uh, dating simulators and of affects? Um, you already gave a little bit of an answer that uh, to that yesterday to me, but let's let's discuss that in a little bit more detail here. Yeah, I do think it goes hand in hand. Um, so what dating sims bring to game studies is an understanding of affect, parasocial relationships, um, more story-driven medium, like you say, and and not that competitive. So it's it's a very different discourse that can really add, and this is also a very fan-driven genre. So, so very differently in terms of production and uh, community, very participatory. So that's something I like. The other way around, what can game studies bring <clears throat> as a lens to these games, I think is an understanding of their mechanics and how things work, an understanding of uh, maybe different types of characters and items and inventories and structuring games. So an appreciation of game design, I would say, and uh, rules, rewards, goals, different systems, so that you can also look at this as a game and study it fully, not just as a text or as a literature, because this is an immersive medium. This is about engagement. This is about building relationships. This still is about levels <laughs> and leveling up. So this still is about choice. So this understanding, this deep understanding of interactive narratives, immersion, play styles, 
and how games and communities relate. I think that is something game studies can bring us. So I do think that it would be really odd to look at these types of games without evoking any game studies, as if they were just literature or texts you read, because much more is happening here. Yeah. So at the very least, you need to consider them as um, ergodic literature, like uh-huh, Aspen R said, uh-huh, your uh, former supervisor discussed it. Uh-huh. Yes. So it is an interactive type of narrative with a fundamentally different nature, and the choices you make have to be meaningful. So at the very least, that is a handle. And again, I don't think particular game studies are necessarily needed, but an appreciation of the rules of play (laughs) and how playing works um, is definitely needed. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much uh, for answering that. And um, before I uh, hit the uh, end of the recording, is there anything you'd like to add, you'd like to say? No, it was such a pleasant conversation. Um, Yeah, it's always good to see what we have in common. Um, I think we both study these emotions and relationships deeply that we have with characters. I think it's elite for something, not just in game studies, but in media and cultural studies overall. Um, Yeah, sometimes in some disciplines, it's treated as a taboo topic, as we heard uh, this week. But I do think it's something we really, really need to discuss because characters won't disappear. They will only be here more and more and more. And if we don't theorize that, and if we only keep looking at narrative structures overall or authorship, we're, we're really missing a big part of the puzzle, I feel so. Yeah, these, these relationships between players and characters, um, audiences and characters, they're something uh, fundamental. So let's uh, have a look. Yeah, and they're gonna play an in- big impact on our, on our future. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Elaine, for inviting me. And uh, yeah.